welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. Holy cinematic criticism! It may have been less than a decade since we saw him last, but the Batman has got a new haircut, a fresh coat of eyeshadow, and a lot of emotional baggage to unpack. Here with me are a trio of Bat specialists who I know are up to the task, including returning guest and senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Thanks, old chum. Fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society and coming back to us again, Corey Massimino. Hey there, thanks for having me on again. And joining us for the first time here on Pop and Lock, we are excited to have Communications Director for Daily Co's, Carolyn Fiddler. Thanks for having me. Now, I read a tweet recently that outlined the, the timeline of how many times Batman had been rebooted since the original like film adaptation came out in 1960. So like 89, 2005, 2016, 2022, and kind of proposed jokingly that given sufficient extrapolation, we will have a new Batman reboot every 15 microseconds by the year 2050. Um So all of these superhero films these days are kind of divorced from their self-contained messages. They are at least inevitably in conversation with one another. So what does this Batman, the sort of Matt Reeves Batman, have to say that is different than all of the others that had come before it? Or what has he brought back to the forefront? So I I think, you know, in a way... This is a kind of Batman that you could only do as a reboot uh, because it exists very much in dialogue with uh, prior incarnations of the character in in film as well as in uh, uh, you know the sort of the many different versions that appeared in the comics, which is to say, um, this movie kind of pulls a fast one, right? You uh, you know, you look at the trailers uh, and the you know the beginning of the movie, and you think you're gonna get the you know maybe the the grim darkest of the grim dark batmans right a kind of a uh, a viscerally brutal um savage guy uh in 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 the vein of Zack Snyder's uh you know sort of gleefully murderous batfleck um despite all the the smarty pants detective work he does um this is a guy who likes doing violence uh and you know, in, in a way, the story of the movie, which is uh, maybe Corey will disagree, but I think this is one of the one of the only film adaptations where really Batman has a clear character arc. Um, you know, he actually changes over the course of it and um, sees through something false he believed about himself and his motivations. Um, so this is, and and this is, you know, something we've seen a lot in the comics. Grant Morrison has done this to some extent in in his runs on the character. Is hey, you know, the thing that was brilliant about like '80s comics, like Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns, wasn't that they were brutal and cynical and dark and violent all the time. Um, doing a realistic and mature take on these comics characters doesn't mean making them joyless bastards like Jack Snyder thinks. Um, and, you know, hey, um, it's okay to be a little Silver Age. Uh, you know, maybe that doesn't mean you're flying around with uh, shark-repellent bat spray and, and, and uh, giant dinosaurs. Um, and, you know, having Batman visit the Hollow Earth or dress up in rainbow-colored costumes every day. Um, but he doesn't just have to be this brooding jerk um, who is nothing but vengeance all the time. Um, Batman should also be a protector and a symbol of hope. Um, Not just someone who scares criminals, but someone who makes ordinary people feel safe. Um, And so, you know, in a lot of ways, if this had been, I mean, it would have been great if this had been like the first modern Batman movie, um, but it wouldn't have landed really the same way. Uh, I think, I think in a lot of ways, this Batman is a statement about how we have understood Batman and what it means to have a grounded and realistic and mature take on Batman. I would agree with pretty much all of that, but also um, this is the first Batman movie that really uh, is a response to and incorporates elements of the uh, of, of the comic universe in all its various aspects uh, more than any other Batman movie that I've ever seen. Even the very comic booky uh, Batman and Robin. Uh, this this comic book, sorry, this movie owes more to the comic books than any other Batman movie aside from it like existing. Uh, I mean, really, the movie's mostly just a love letter to Jeff Loeb. <laughs> I mean, um, but it's 
much easier to appreciate that uh, after seeing all the comic, all the movie iterations that came before, um, many of which were quite good. I'm a huge fan of the original Batman and, uh, of course, Dark Knight. Pretty great. The message of this movie, I totally agree with um, Julian, and that was the most surprisingly pleasant part of this film. Um, by the end, it's it's absolutely a repudiation of what you thought it might be of, of in many ways, previous iterations. Um, you know, I mean, it, the, the the thematic emphasis on redemption, I thought was just fantastic. And, and it's not what I expected necessarily from the first trailers. Um, and especially, like you said, it is in dialogue with the other Batman, you know, the Tim Burton Batman. I mean, that whole world, everyone in that world has fallen. There's no redemption for anyone, I don't think, uh, with those characters. Um, and then in Nolan, I, you know, None of the villains are sympathetic. I, I felt like this this movie like actually got a lot of those elements that are in the comics a lot, um, as well as something like the animated series, and, and brought it to life finally. And let me just, I, just because I, I I cataloged this, I want to I want to um, or you know the ones I could think of, and I'm sure others could think of more. Um, it's it's almost impressive how many recognizable beats in the movie um, you can you, you know, are just very clearly um, borrowed from different great. Uh, Batman story arcs. So the um, this idea of a serial killer who's who's uh, targeting the Falcone uh, crime family and corrupt public officials. That's straight from, uh, as Carolyn noted, Jeff Loeb's Long Halloween, um, which which Nolan actually borrows a bit from as well. Um, Selena Kyle being Falcone's daughter is from the sequel to Long Halloween, Loeb's Dark Victory. Um, most of the rest of the portrait of Selena Kyle is from uh, Frank Miller's Year One, and in fact, the some of the exterior shots through the window of her apartment um, seem to me almost like uh, direct lifts from uh, from like frames of that comic. Um, the Waynes being political figures, and Alfred being not really so much a butler, but a um, a kind of security chief for the Waynes, who was actually the one who trained Bruce. That's from Jeff Johns's uh, Batman Earth One. Um, the 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 scene where there's a mugging victim, uh, who after Batman sort of saves him, is actually even more scared of Batman and is saying, "Please don't hurt me," um, is a, a straight lift of a frame from Grant Morrison's Gothic. Um, the idea of the villain spoilers, but you know, don't listen to this if you haven't seen the movie yet. Um, the, the villain uh, was raised at a squalid orphanage where he's resentful of the the, the much more famous and rich orphan Bruce Wayne. Um, is straight from um, uh, Scott Snyder's City of Owls uh, arc. Um, which is a, sort of the sequel to The Court of Owls, um, in, in that case, with a villain who literally thinks he's Bruce Wayne's brother and, and might be. Um, there's like a head fake um, I, uh, from from the Hush comics. Um, there's a, a reporter um, whose death is in, indirectly attributable to uh, the Waynes, um, whose last name is Elliot. I, I looked to my friends in the theater and said, oh, they're setting this up. It's not really Riddler, it's Hush um, from the Hush comics. Hush is a villain named Thomas Elliot. Um, so that was just, that was just like an Easter egg to, to, um, freak the fans out. Um, the idea of, of Riddler flooding Gotham city, uh, is from Zack Snyder's zero year. Um, the sort of the thematic threat of the Bruce Wayne personality being kind of completely consumed by Batman is from Darwin Cook's ego. I'm sure there's more than that. Um, but just a lot more than most other Batman movies, you can kind of, as you're kind of going through it, go, oh, that's from... You know, not just the general Batman mythos, but this is from a specific story arc. So they they really mind that, and it's actually impressive that the movie feels cohesive as cohesive as it does, um, and not like just a kind of weird pastiche of influences. I also love how it doesn't just riff on these plot elements from from classic Batman stories, but um, like just the one thing I really appreciated was like opening and closing the movie with that voiceover of Batman talking to the audience and made it feel much more like the comics where you almost always have access to his inner voice and perspective. Um, and I'm surprised none of the other Batman movies ever wanted to do something like that. And that was very effective here and made it feel more like the books as well. I mean, I think that's something that they, they kind of get away with um, because this is such a noir film and that's kind of a noir convention. I, you know, I think in general, in modern film, there's a sense that like voiceovers are kind of a cheat and you're probably, you know, not a very good filmmaker if you have to, rely on a voiceover to convey uh, information that the, that the audience needs. Um, but here it works, I think pretty well. Um, it also, I think actually it works as an interesting setup, right? Because the first, the very first shot of movie uh, of the movie is um, right. This kind of long lingering Hitchcockian 
pan across an apartment building and you see a kid through the window and we're kind of programmed by the previous movies to think, oh, this must be young Bruce Wayne. But no, it's not. It's it's like the family of the uh, the Riddler's first victim. But so we're seeing through the eyes of the victim uh, of, of the Riddler, um, the absolute first shot of the movie. Uh, and then, you know, one of the first things we hear, uh, the first voice we hear, well, it's, it's like a TV screen, but um, then Bruce Wayne's voiceover. And I think that sets up an interesting contrast, right? Um, Bruce Wayne is kind of, com- at least at the start of the completely sort of self-obsessed and ruminating and, and like keeping an emo journal um, about what a creature of the night he is. Um, and Rid- I had a very black case book vibe, speaking of yeah. references and things that were um, slipped between. Oh, uh, and, and the Riddler is more outer directed, right? He's the one who sees more. And in fact, there's a parallel set up between the first time you see both characters, right? You see Riddler first. Um, he's got hidden in the dark in the background. Um, and then a light, I think, from the TV sort of suddenly illuminates him. Uh, but not him, just his glasses. So the first time you see Riddler is as a silhouette that becomes detectable as a light shines on his glasses and lights up. So, hey, this is a character who sees, and in, in particular, sees more clearly than Bruce Wayne does. Um, and then there's this parallel. Then the first time we see Batman directly mimics this as he is emerging from the shadow that criminals have been kind of um, gazing into, constantly fearing that Batman is in one of them. And then uh, it turns out he is finally in one of them. Well, also uh, sort of voiceovers, as in like just sort of uh, inner thoughts are another big comic book convention that he really successfully lifted for this, which, as you mentioned, is really well done because it is easy for that to kind of seem cheesy and cheap and uh, not earned, but it worked really well here. And yeah, the whole thing was, I mean, there are many things about the movie that I loved. A few things I really didn't love, but mostly it was just such a love letter to comic book fans, especially Batman fans, obviously, but comic book fans generally, while also being a really great movie at the same time, I am just super impressed that he pulled that off. <laughs> what was what was the, the, the black case book lift you mentioned? Oh, just the, the, the nature of the journal, the way it looked, um, the kind of voiceover while he's like writing in it. It's, it's a super deep cut. <laughs> I liked how the voice, like, I agree, the voiceover can so often be lazy, so it was nicer. It wasn't, it, almost none of it was, like, mere exposition or delivering plot to the audience. It was for it was for the purpose of characterization. The plot would have functioned perfectly fine, I think, without what he says to the audience. But the fact that it, like, deepens his character, deepens your, like, immersion into him as a character, it helps, too, because in prior Batman movies, uh, such a major complaint has him being out, uh, you know, outshined by the, the villains. So here, getting into his POV uh, is very effective for that arc. Speaking of who we sort of conceive of as the villain in this movie, obviously we can talk about the Riddler, all of his riddles and the sort of meaning behind them. But I think tied up in that is the sort of complicated relationship with who is really the villain in all of this, who is really at fault. And what the Riddler is trying to expose and bring into the light is that the people in power, these you know hierarchies – uh, and specifically, you know, politicians and police, the people that, you know, enact certain policies and actions and violence upon people, um, that they are the ones who are the the real enemies here. And Batman's interactions with police in this movie are really, really interesting to me, especially compared to like what we see in the Christopher Nolan stuff, because as uh Julian had mentioned before Batman is actually helping to solve crimes in this movie. He is not just coming out of the shadows and you know beating people up. He does plenty of that and that might be you know sort of where he gets his kicks and like really sorts through his emotional baggage and why we get this emo Batman. But you know they do to his credit make him more of a it's it, it has a noir angle too it's it's much more than that he's with commissioner gordon not just on the rooftops of buildings but he's at crime scenes and he's looking at evidence and then he's taking it home and cracking ciphers with alfred's help and you know doing all of these things in a little bit more of a, a, a like a gumshoe style uh type hero than we've gotten in the sort of very heroic swoop down from the dark rich boy with a bunch of gadgets batman uh previously and 
then you've got the the arc of like citywide corruption going on and the sort of weird cooperation with police in this movie jumped out at me most of all when they're arresting uh Falcone uh and bringing him out of the iceberg lounge and he's you know they, they think we've finally got him uh he's the rat and He's like, well, you guys all work for me. Don't you know that? And they open the doors and Commissioner Gordon says, well, I guess we don't all work for you. And they're all there like shining their lights on him. And I was like, it just, it read so odd as a choice for me. And I was really curious what everyone else thought about that because it was it was the one moment in the film where the, the reading of cheesy that came out of it was not done in a sort of uh, like critical or uh, like commentating way. Like when, like the the great moment when he flies underneath the bridge and his parachute gets caught and he hits the top of the car. I laughed out loud, but I, I think that serves a kind of purpose to show what happens to his character. But that seemed like weirdly explicitly kind of like blue lives matter ish like they're we're not all corrupt um what did everyone else think of that moment because i think that theme is really really important to the rest of the film and, and am i missing something by reading it that way is that just surface level message it was weird it was it felt really out of place because something that made a lot of sense to me through the rest of the movie uh was the fact that the cops both the corrupt ones and the ones that we are pretty sure might not be corrupt or whatever. They all hate him, except for everyone hates him, except for Gordon. Like all the cops are like, you're a crazy person in a bat suit. And Gordon's like, ah, for whatever reason. And another interesting thing is that we never get the backstory of why Gordon trusts him. I think, I think Jeffrey Wright was able to pull that off in a way that not a lot of other actors could have, because it didn't bug me too much, but it bugged me a little. Cause I'm like, okay, everyone else hates him, but Gordon's like, I really trust this guy and I'm willing to take a punch in the face for him. They do have a really, really great buddy cop dynamic to sort of lean into the yeah, noir no, aspects. I... I really liked their kind of back and forth there. And when, when the penguin calls it out <laughs> at one point and is like, aren't you two a pair? Like. It was beautiful. It was a great moment. It was. No, I completely agree. Although I really wish I knew why Gordon trusted him and no one else did. But yeah, it made that bit at the end seem really, really weird. Agreed. Because um, there were so many obviously corrupt cops in Gotham. But where were all these other guys <laughs> just hiding while their corrupt pals were doing things? I don't know. At least it wasn't as bad as the end of The Dark Knight Rises. Right. <laughs> right. There's only one police in this town. I was going to say, you know, the, the, I mean, like the, 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 Corrupt cops, like this thing, you, you do kind of have to lean into if you want any kind of sort of quasi grounded feeling or realistic feeling uh, take on Batman, it, just because you know you have sort of the obvious question, right? Like you're a billionaire, why do you think the best way to make the city safer is like dressing up in a costume and like beating up muggers instead of you know funding more police or funding you know better public institutions or whatever? Which um, Actually, in contrast to the comics, this Bruce Wayne has apparently stopped doing philanthropy. There's a dialogue at, at one point where uh, another character says, well, the Wayne legacy was, was all this philanthropy and you don't seem to be doing anything. Um, if you if you sort of start from the perspective, actually, all these social institutions are completely corrupt. Um, it, it starts to make, I don't know if it, I would say it makes sense, but it, it makes a little more sense that, OK, he's got to do something radically different you know because pouring more funds into these institutions which is what his father tried to do um it, you're just feeding the corruption it's not going to help um and so in a sense right you 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 wonder then well so they're suggesting aha there's hope and falcons you know out of the way now um you know does that mean you know things have changed you, you in a sense right if you if you want to keep having batman stories um, to some extent, you, you kind of need to preserve the idea that, um, that that's still not a solution um, that's that's a viable alternative. Well, I think if you're if with this movie, I mean, if you're telling a, a story of redemption and, and you have so much of the world defined by these corrupt institutions, then you want some sort of arc or some or scenes in there to reflect almost an arc of the institutions being redeemed in some way and being improved to some extent by uh, by Batman's actions. So I think that is like, 
I guess the emotional purpose for something like this element of the film, like this through line um, up until that cringe scene, I guess it's just unfortunate. I mean, this is the thing with all, really with Batman comics forever. It's, 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 there's that idea of wanting to redeem, um, um, you know, an an institutional problem um, with the city's legal system and the city's police, but you kind of get a, a kind of a dumbed down version of like what, like an institutional problem is and it's like oh it just turns out you know drug lords are like bribing the cops and it's like that's not a very nuanced or sophisticated or you know complex take on like what or what are the incentives that cause you know police brutality or 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 police corruption or uh, things like that so you get kind of a simplified arc there with as if you could just stop police corruption by like, well, now now they're not bribed. Which so. is really interesting considering, I don't know if this has been done in the comics that it's pulled from, but uh, Selena Kyle at one point, I mean, they she makes it explicitly about race at one point when talking about, you know, the rich white boys that are in charge, which to me was, was really interesting. And, you know, I, I, I valued that because while a few years ago it might have sounded like, somebody i don't know kind of trying to parrot what somebody sounds like like yeah that that is a talking point that comes up now and has a lot of validity to it and that type of commentary is missing a lot from our superhero stories or was for many years you know now we're we're getting a lot more of that on the the cinematic level it it was happening a lot in comic books and there's you know been a lot of great writers who of color who have you know, come out and published and redone these stories and retooled them. But on a cinematic level, you know, only in the past maybe three, four, five years on a large scale has that become part of the story that we are getting. Uh, and it's really interesting to me because, as Julian has actually talked about on the show before, because of these sort of weird inherent fascism of superheroes the fact that you know all of this corruption and and things are so wrong with the world but there is this small you know group of select special people who have just the precise number of skills and powers who we should all trust to take care of us and, and and solve these things i mean especially in a world we live in today where you know police officers, you know, bear the punisher symbol, uh, you know, to, to sort of, you know, assert authority and put on an, an, an air of, of power as ironic as using the punisher symbol would be. Right. Which totally right. misses the right. point. So like, <laughs> what does integrating that in Selena Kyle's story, you know, mean when, when they, when they talk about it there, but then they don't talk about it all with the police. There. What is missing? What is the sort of point and how could they have better done that? I mean, Carolyn, you talked about some of the things that you didn't like that the film could do. Maybe this is a better way to transition to the things that we thought the film could do better. Um, what was missing and what could they have done to take those things that they might have tiptoed toward, but never, you know, you know, they didn't jump into the pool. That's uh, you raise a really good point. And in terms of like things that they tiptoed towards, even the comics, even with a black Batman, I think that um, Batman in particular, and uh, I follow the current um, uh, the current um, uh, arc more than any other superhero arc really out there right now. Like I usually go back and catch up on other things. But anyway, so there is an Elseworlds sort of story uh, known called White Knight that really addresses like Batman, like what if he's actually the bad guy? Um, and this, and the movie, as you, as you mentioned, kind of tiptoes towards that uh, and does bring up issues of race, which do come up in White Knight, not very satisfyingly, I might note, <laughs> but um, it does at least finally take them on a little bit. Um, you're right. It gets mentioned here and then kind of dropped. And uh, it's, yeah, it's certainly not really mentioned in regard to the police force at all. It's just, it, it, it's it's uh, brought up in the politics. We have a, a black candidate running for mayor who is, you know, supposed to be sort of this savior figure. Um, like had, had some Obama flavor in there that I thought was a little overdone, but whatever. Um, but yeah, that we're brought up. We're, the the race thing comes up in socioeconomic uh, terms, but not in like um, criminal justice terms specifically. It's just okay. You're this rich white guy 
who's very sad and has very floppy hair when he's not being Batman. And um, what about the rest of us who are just trying to live our damn lives? So I, I will, I would say you're just slightly orthogonal, but I you know, nurse in my head um, uh, a sort of a, bat, a Batman BLM kind of story, like Bat Lives Matter, right? Where um, um, the sort of premise, it's a little, maybe cribbed from, from White Knight a little bit, but, um, you know, the, the idea being, okay, at some point, as right in the real world would be inevitable, right? If you're some, there's a character like Batman who's going around beating people up and dangling people off buildings for information, right? Sooner or later, he is going to, by accident, either seriously injure or kill someone who's either innocent or, you know, guilty of fairly minor crimes, right? It's just he's going to be chasing someone who's stolen an iPhone and hit them the wrong way, and they're going to crack their head on a wall and 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 die or be paralyzed. Um, that's just that what that's what would happen in the real world if someone was using violence as much as Batman is, however well trained he is. And then, hey, what would the reaction to that be? Um, you know, especially if. Um, you know, the, the, the person he injures is non-white and there's a question of, well, you know, did he react to the threat, uh, in, in a way that was partly based on that, um, and actually get, you know, <laughs> some self-examination about, well, God, you know, how, how much violence am I deploying? Can I really justify this? Um, and I think, it, the, you know, the, the Reeves Batman movie is, you know, sort of tiptoeing towards this in some interesting ways, um, because, you know, this Batman is a jerk, right? This is not, a, like, a nice or heroic character, uh, certainly at the outset. Um, this is a guy who um, is actually a kind of great little scene where he's, like, sending Selena Kyle in to do surveillance with this, like, high-tech camera contact lenses. And she basically says, you know, you're just using me. You don't care about my safety. Um, and he kind of grabs her chin, and you think he's going to, like, Right, it's it's a frame setup. So like, oh, you think he's going to say something reassuring? Like, I won't let anything happen. No, he just you know tilts her head up. He says, oh, I just want to check your contacts because um, she's right. He doesn't care. He's using her um, in the you know at the at the very beginning when he's beating those um, those you know crooks up and and the victim is as scared of him as the crooks. He seems totally indifferent to this. Right, he's not a rescuer. He's just oh feels so much better when he gets to beat criminals up. Um, uh, talking about is a, a roommate and, and maybe girlfriend of Selena Kyle who um, is just horribly murdered, um, basically because she was she was having sex with the the, um, the mayor. Um, it's implied she was a sex worker, um, and Batman is essentially says, "Well, you know, she I don't know if she had it coming, but like, well, you know, there are consequences to the bad choices she made." Um, he has the same attitude about the death of Gordon's former partner. Um, who was a corrupt guy? He crossed a line. He was a god. So you got this Batman with this very kind of Old Testament morality and this very cartoonish, you know, let's say comic booky picture of the world where they're like perfect saints like his parents, um, who were horribly wronged, and then right sinners who deserve limitless violence in repayment for for these wrongs. Um, and so if you're not, you know, one of the perfect people and, oh, um, you know, uh, well, you deserve whatever you get. Um, he's actually, even to Alfred, he's kind of a, a jerk, right? Uh, he, at, at one point in the same scene, he says, uh, says to Alfred, oh, you're not my father. Alfred is visibly kind of wounded by this. Um, then he offers Bruce his cufflinks, uh, and Bruce kind of scoffs because they have a, the Wayne W on them. He goes, oh. You're a Wayne now? Huh. Um, and, uh, you know, both times, right? He's talking to the guy who raised him since he was 12. Um, the guy is obviously kind of hurt by these remarks because he, he does sort of think of himself as as, um, as Bruce's family. Um, and eh, Wayne he doesn't care. Um, you're not really a Wayne. You're not really my dad. Um I mean, he really is, you know. You, I feel like that would have been settled a long time ago. Like, if you're being raised as an orphan, like, wouldn't you be like, wouldn't you roll out the, you're yeah. not my dad thing a yeah. lot as a teenager? Like, I feel like that should yeah, be Yeah, yeah, you have to but. assume Alfred <laughs> heard this a lot, Gray. You, you feel you feel for for, for Andy Serkis' right. Alfred here. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, this is not a, a, a not a nice guy. And so, you, know, you he's finally kind of called out on this by Selena at one point when he says this kind of awful thing about her her girlfriend. Um, well, you know, she, her murder, her horrible murder, uh, you know, she made choices that, and they had consequences, um, that, yeah, you know, this is someone who is, um, you know, detached, 
um, maybe from you know the the, uh, the real world has this very simplistic sense of morality um, and is kind of rationalizing what he's doing. Um, this the, kind of all this violence he's he's dealing out, um, and that, hey, maybe he's kind of doing this as as um, a very hands on kind of therapy that doesn't have a whole lot to do with you know really trying to make the world a better place or even the city a better place. Um, it's just, you know, I feel a lot better when I get to reenact the night my parents were killed, except the criminals get it instead. Um, and less to do with, well, what is, what do people need? What does the city need? Um, and, you know, we see actually, I think a lot of the, uh, the trouble he has solving this case come from a lack of perspective taking. Um, right. He's, um, there's a, a point where the Riddler releases photos from the Iceberg Lounge that have this important plot effect, and Batman notices these minute clues in the photo, like, oh, the victim was wearing uh, these boots, and then Selina Kyle is wearing the same boots, and he knows that they're connected. And right. um, He doesn't stop to think, what's the perspective these photos were taken from? Who shot these photos? From, from, from what vantage point? Um, well, the vantage point is Edward Nashton's apart- the Riddler's apartment. Um, right. So if he'd gone, oh, you know, let's trace the line here. That's ah, Riddler's apartment. We, you know, move, movies over very quickly. Um, the in fact, <laughs> one of the one of the um, key clues, right, involves is like a working class cop who uh, looks at the murder weapon. The very first murder looks at the murder weapon. Says, oh, that's this carpeting tool. Um, and then he looks. He, then he knows he looks under the carpet at Riddler's apartment and sees like the big map of, of, of Riddler's master plan. He clearly didn't recognize earlier. Um, what this was, um, and that it might it might you know be an additional clue. Um, so there's a couple points where um, you know he's this very good detective. He knows all about you know corpse decomposition and other and cryptography and things that help him solve the case. Um, but in some sense, right, he's not good at perspective taking. He doesn't know a whole lot about like being a, a blue collar laborer, um, and it's that. Kind of those end up being the clues he misses um, that, in a sense, cause him to fail. Right? This is like you know they, they catch the Riddler, but they do fail. They don't stop his plan. That Gotham City gets flooded. Um, uh, so uh, you know, uh, again, you know, kind of Batman's arc in this is about recognizing, um, hey, maybe I've been I've been not doing this for the right reasons, but also, hey, maybe I need to come down from my from my bat perch a little bit. <laughs> You know, it occurs to me that the only Batman movie in which we've gotten him going into therapy is Batman Forever. That's that's the only time that happened. Whereas, you know, Kid Bruce Wayne should have been in a lot of therapy. We never learn anything about that. The closest we get to that is uh, we learn in, in uh, the Rebirth uh, continuity that uh, he attempted suicide as a teenager. That's, that's the, all the, I get. The, the, <laughs> like, and maybe he had some therapy as a result of that or not. We don't know. But, I mean, Bruce Wayne needed therapy, and it seems like he never well, got The problem it, is in the comics, weird. usually his therapist turns out to be Hugo Strange. <laughs> or, 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 uh, or what's his name? Thomas Hurt. Right. Uh, is it, no, Thomas, Simon Hurt? Who is maybe Thomas Wayne? Anyway, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, in the comics, oh, every time Bruce, like, tries to go into therapy, it's, just, like, it's a supervillain. Um, maybe not a great message for the kids. I really love the the points um, Julian's making about, I mean, cat, it, this movie is so different in casting that wealth and, and privilege of Batman as a, as, a, as a source of weakness, really. The, the, obviously, the history of Batman is that's been a source of power ever since he was, I mean, it's been kind of uneasy ever since he was created. I mean, you have, he's riffing on, you know, he was created purely to imitate Superman following that success, and Superman's more of a 20th century from a working class uh, family, the Kents. Kind of that that kind of working class vibe for the Superman stories. Batman is going back to a 19th century hero from the aristocracy, more like the Scarlet Pimpernel. And like, there's been this uneasy tension, and I absolutely love the way this movie casts these things as actually his source of weakness because there's this it's like this epistemic limitation to to what he can even see, what vantage points. I love how one of his and one of the funniest moments and 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 one of his biggest failures was just he doesn't know Spanish. If he just knew Spanish accurately, he would have solved. <laughs> he would have avoided so much of the film and gotten and and, and so I love that it recasts um, his privilege and his power. You know, he's been up in the the tower on the, and like this version. He didn't grow up in the the manor, right? He grew up in the tower, up detached from the city, like Julian was saying. I love that he has to get down to the nitty gritty and and he kind of fucks up along the way. 
And I love how he's really, like you guys said, he's, I mean, he's a dick to everyone. He's really a huge jerk to Alfred. And I love how, I mean, you both are saying really, in many ways, the villain is Batman. He's a dick even to Bruce, right? Like Bruce's life is a mess because of this persona of Batman. In many ways, it draws on, like Julian said earlier, one of my favorite books, Batman Ego. You know, this this monster of Batman is is standing in the way of progress more than anyone in the movie. Would you say there's something in the way? Something. Shut it down. <laughs> Shut it down. Stop before, stop before we get copyright struck. Sorry, Carol. <laughs> But like this is this is the first movie, and you know, and in the comics, this is almost never becomes a liability. But his 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 wealth is not a superpower here, the way it usually is. I mean, obviously, it gives him fancy back computers and things like that, but it's not really deployed to the extent that it is in other movies and in many comic book arcs. So, the confusion about who the winged rat is and what metaphor they're trying to use coming up. There's, there's like four different leads they chase down that could, that the winged rat could be, whether it's like, it's a stool pigeon, it's a falcon, it's a bat. I was like, no one sat down and made a list. I was list. like shouting at the screen. I, I'm really, like, I really was like, it took this long for some, like stool pigeon. Yeah. It was, I mean, I guess people would say, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe you no. see a lot of pigeons if you're up in your tower all the time or you see a falcon or something, but it's like have some self-reflection here. And I guess maybe that was the part of it was that, you know, he's constantly, you know, as much as he's looking inward at himself, he doesn't have an accurate picture of, of what he is or something like that. Um, but I was I just couldn't understand the whole time. I, it was very rarely do I feel the need to shout at the screen, but. That was one of them, especially when <laughs> early on, Alfred's like, well, he has pretty bad Spanish, but like he they plant it so firmly in the beginning that I'm like, even Bruce, I know you're in the movie, but can't you see <laughs> this is. Yeah, it bothered even with my with my high school Spanish. It bothered me quite a lot. Too. I, I was so relieved that turned out to be a plot point because I was like, oh, God, really? You know, come on. You couldn't you couldn't find one. Spanish speaker to, to correct this for you. So I was I was relieved that was an actual plot point and not just uh, sloppiness. Although I will say, you know, that ambiguity is in there partly because, um, right, the Riddler's messages to Batman all work on a bunch of different levels, right? On one level, like, it's classic Riddler. These are taunting clues. Come catch me. Um, you know, come solve my the mystery I'm laying out. And then later we realize... Oh, the Riddler thinks Batman is like his ally and his partner, and he's giving directions. To, he's feeding Batman information, right? He's making sure Batman learns the picture of the city and the corruption that, that Batman has, and then gets the message, um, I need you to bring Falcone out into the light so I can shoot him. Um, but kind of beyond the plot level, right, they also work as, you know, kind of therapeutic messages to Batman, right? If you think about, like, Okay, the 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 riddles to the DA, um, right? I can be I can be cruel, poetic, or blind, but when I'm ignored, it's violence you may find. Batman knows justice, right? Is the answer. Um, but what is Batman doing, right? He's running around beating up muggers in a really brutal way. It doesn't seem to be about protecting people. It's not about justice. It's about violence. Um, uh, uh, since you are justice, please. I mean, he reminds, he just, yeah, he reminds everyone right. constantly. They, they call him Ben. They call him Benjamin in this movie more than they call him Batman, um, right? And then the riddle is: If you're justice, please do not lie. What is the price for your blind eye? This is at the plot level about um, the uh, right, the corruption of the DA is taking bribes, but it's also, hey, Bruce, what is the cost for your inability to right, like see what you're actually doing and what your motives are? Um, and then, since your justice is so select. Who is the vermin? This is right—the reference back to the winged rat you're paid to protect. Um, so this needs to be right, both a reference to the stool pigeon, the vermin um, that these corrupt officials are protecting, but also, um, hey, you know, who, who is it that you've paid this this price to protect? Who are you protecting, Bruce? Is it the city, or is it the winged rat? Is it yourself? Um, and in a sense, right, the movie is about Batman kind of coming to see that that's what he's involved in, and the solution. Is Riddler's last riddle, um, right, which, which ends in, um, you know, bring him into the light and and you'll find where I'm at. Um, and hey, what's the solution? You need it's time for Batman to maybe not skulk in the shadows all the time. 
you need to bring him out into the light and be a symbol of hope and inspiration and not just uh, this, this kind of figure of violence and terror that criminals are scared of, but something that makes people feel protected. Um, so in a lot of ways, right, what's what's going on here is, you know, the, the partnership the Riddler imagines at, at the plot level, but also in, in a way, a real partnership where this kind of dialogue of riddles is kind of the therapy Bruce needs. And like you said, it was all the villain the whole time. Yeah, I thought that was a stroke of genius, the partnership. I, uh, I, I, I agree, but um, I, I enjoyed that aspect of the clues, but I confess my favorite uh, part of those, uh, those little riddles was really superficial. They were all Easter eggs for other uh, Batman villains. One of the cards had had like the mad scientist on it with the with the shiny glasses. That was obviously strange. Um, oh, there was uh, there was one of them was a redheaded girl sur- surrounded by plants. Um, oh wow! Yeah, there were they were all. I'm now I'm trying to remember the rest of them, but uh, yeah, they were all very kind of obvious allusions to to other Batman villains. So. Now I feel foolish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only they, you know, maybe peeled some plastic off one of the card's lips or something. I would have been like, oh, I get it. I know that one. <laughs> well, there was a Mad Hatter one. There was uh, there was that one. Um, well, since the first crime was on Halloween, the first one might have, I can't remember, but it was probably a Scarecrow one, but I honestly don't recall. But, because I didn't, I didn't pick up on it until like the second card. I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> The, the the layers, the double, the, the meaning, the layers of meaning with the cards is so genius. Like Julian was saying, they apply to Batman. But then there's also, well, they apply just as much to Riddler because Riddler's inspired by Batman. I mean, he, he also has this little self-awareness as as Bruce about what he's doing. It was so such a genius use of Riddler to have it. He thinks he's working with Batman. Batman thinks he's working against Riddler. And they're both sort of wrong. Um, and I like, I love that. Oh, I just loved how they were foiled, like foiled like that. And also... Not just them, but Selena into the mix. I mean, that's why I like that moment, Carolyn, you mentioned where like the you're not my real dad moment. I did like that because I've always thought of Batman as he's fundamentally in a state of arrested development. He, he, he hasn't been able to grow up since his parents were killed. And so all the characters in this movie, Selena, uh, the Riddler and the Batman were orphans in a state of arrested development. They're dressing up to cope with their trauma. That was a fantastic use of the characters. I loved it. I, was, I, l- I looked it up, actually. And Carolyn, the first card is an owl. Right. So, yes, that was it. Yes. Another, yeah. another, another. Uh, sort of like two potential yes. Batman villains there, right? or 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 Owlman even, um, which I guess the Court of Owls ends up creating a new version of. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't. I, I saw it when I was like, there were my, my friend and I were the only people in the theater. So when I yelled at the screen, it was fine. But <laughs> there's like three de facto Adam West Easter eggs. I mean, one, this is the only Batman movie with those four villains, Penguin, Riddler, Catwoman, Joker, since the 66 Adam West movie. And then two, there was that awesome shot of Batman like running down a building, which 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 was like really cool <laughs> of an action shot, but also invoked, obviously, Adam West and Burt Ward crawling up the buildings. And then third, if you notice in the scene where Riddler um, mails the bomb and then Alfred uh, gets hurt, there's the Shakespeare bust in, in his room, which is how they opened the Batcave in the Adam West show. Right. So I loved how really I think high, Matt Reeves, high. he said he grew up with Adam West Batman. Um, so I love that he peppered in his Easter eggs, even though it's such a different version. There was another one, and it's such a dumb, dumbly deep cut. Oh, I'm excited. I'm a little hesitant to mention it, but here no, I am. No, tell us. <laughs> the name of the commissioner who got murdered. Uh, Savage? Peter Savage? He is from an episode of the original, of, of the 66, where uh, Egghead, like, he's actually, like, sort of a, to go back to Hush, he's, like, another sort of rich uh, person who's kidnapped by Egghead, and... Um, and then, oh, that's great. I didn't catch that one. Maybe that ago. means Egghead will be the villain in the sequel. <laughs> but then, like, the Riddler gets involved, and, like, Batman has to, like, tell the Riddler, they're like, oh, you're the smartest villain in Gotham. It's not really Egghead. But he's like, Egghead, you're the smartest. Anyway. Um, but it's a long journey from rich guy who gets kidnapped to police commissioner. But Like, clearly, but just clearly Matt Reeve just loves Batman so much. <laughs> It just like it blew my mind like at multiple points in that movie, and it was really cool to see as someone who also loves Batman. Like I'm, I'm convinced Batfleck is like was created by someone who was like not a huge Batman fan. You know, uh, what's his name doesn't hate uh, Batman as much as he clearly hates Superman. Uh, Zack Snyder, I mean, he clearly hates Superman. But that's you guys want to do an hour on the Zack Snyder reverse? <laughs> Let's get started, everybody. <laughs> Roll tape. Time.
but this was this is but this was a love letter the way that like the the Dark Knight trilogy was not. Um, the Tim Burton original Batman, the first two were like were very much love letters, kind of in this vein, but not as specific. I mean, Zack Zack Snyder loves does like like Batman more than he likes Superman, but he likes him like an angsty teenager, right? And he thinks like, oh, you know, Frank Miller's Miller's Batman was cool because he kills people, and that's awesome, <laughs> right? Yeah, I like him bitter and angry. It's very similar to, I mean, a lot of fictional characters that people take the wrong lesson from or don't realize how much the work is endorsing or condemning them. This movie itself, the beginning of the voice, to go back to the voiceover, I mean, I got strong Rorschach vibes. And even that is riffing on, you know, Taxi Driver um, with Travis Bickle and both, you know, so so knowing, getting that sense of like Batman's, okay, and this, he's more like those characters and he has to obviously grow out of that. He has to, like you said, he has such a retributive morality and drain that for a redemptive morality by the end. Yeah. Yeah, um, I really could have done without the last chunk of the movie as much as I enjoy kind of the, the callback to zero year and like and no man's land and all that. But the flooding of the city, like the whole last bit just felt that that could have been in any like Batman superhero movie like that didn't feel like it, it felt a little out of place to me in the rest of the film. But I'm pretty sure it's he shot his leg full of venom. So at least we got that. Yes. OK, that that makes a lot of sense now, now that you say it, because I was like, that wasn't. It wasn't just like adrenaline shot or so. Okay, I know it was like he didn't have a peanut allergy (laughs) reaction at that moment. So okay, that was interesting. Yes, no, it was greenish. Like the thing about that scene that bugged me, just like a weird nitpicky thing, is there's all of this scaffolding falling and like water is rushing in and it's full everywhere. And they see this like one electrical box that like the 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 cable is is torn and falling and you know he cuts it and falls and they're like oh great not everyone's gonna get electrocuted. There is so much electrical equipment on that stage there's so many more people would have died by the like diseases from the flood water and the getting shocked to death from all of the amplification systems and the pa from that than that one box i was like no one is like and shaking down in the water there and yet (laughs) gosh it was the one thing that i feel bad i hate to be one of those people that points at stuff and is like that wouldn't actually happen i'm like it's a movie get over it but that i was like we did all this work yeah I mean, that's part of why it felt out of place. The rest felt really like lived in and normal-ish, I mean, for like a comic book world. And that was just like, what are you doing? And then I really also disliked the end with a cutesy motorcycle chase. That was stupid and garbage. They just, I think they just did, I just think they had that last dialogue bit at the end just to mention Bluehaven. I think they just want to introduce that and make people squeal if they recognize it. I don't know. It was silly. Yeah, this this is this is a movie that that I mean even after the 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 so the Dinamo in the in the whatever, Madison Square Garden space. Uh, this movie does suffer, this is, I think, the, you know, the, the best Batman movie, uh, you know, maybe tied with The Dark Knight. Um, but it does suffer a little bit from Return of the King sort of syndrome where, yeah, yes. it's over. Oh, no, okay, there's another, okay. Oh, all right, now is there, no, oh, there's, there's another scene? Okay, okay. Um, there's that weird kind of exchange <laughs> between Riddler and presumably Joker that seems like, they made a mid credit scene and then like decided to actually stick it in the movie yeah. instead. Right in the it, actual movie? It, it, it just like breaks the kind of flow of the film. And, and it, it really does feel like you, you know, they shot a, an end credit scene and, um, and then like pasted it in somewhere. Um, and then the, all the stuff at the end. It, I did read, I did read the director was gonna like, didn't want to include that um, in as part of the main movie, but the audience reaction was just like, so, or like the sample audience, whatever reaction was so positive. He's like, eh, F it. I'll put it in. But it would have, that would have definitely worked better as a mid credit scene. I, could well, not I, th- agree I thought it was weird towards the end here. I mean, there was that whole big sequence where Batman is saving all of these innocent people. That was weird. I, I don't tend to see that in super saving innocent people. Is that, I don't think I've, I've rarely seen Batman do that in the films and barely any superhero movies do that. So that was a bit uh, jarring to see superhero saving people, but. I mean, it was it was just a really kind of hit you over the head with that. Hey, he's a better guy. Oh, now. if it's not clear, I he's love that scene. Of vengeance. I hate that right. superhero <laughs> movies do not show them saving innocent people. <laughs> the like ne plus ultra of this is um, in Snyder's Man of Steel. Um, there's a scene where like Congress or something has been bombed, and everything is in flames, and people are screaming and running, 
and like Superman is there and he's just sort of like hovering and scowling, not like, oh, you know, flying around. Who can I help? Um, so that's, that's, uh, um, so yeah, I, I, I really liked that, that, that we're saying, I, I think I, I wrote in some of the discussion before it, um, it had the, the sort of the feel, even sort of visually, right. I feel like the movie kind of visually changes around this point. And I said, it had the kind of the sensation of you're reading a Frank Miller book and then suddenly like a, like a splash shot from like a, a late silver age, Steve Englehart story, um, right. Like gets dropped into it and you're like, oh, this is, I'm. I'm suddenly reading a different kind of era and take on, on Batman. Well, that, that actually reminds me that this movie is like the complete inverse of man of steel. Like this gets Batman right. in in, in many ways in which man of steel got Superman totally wrong. <laughs> so another, another way it's not the opposite of man of steel. And my, I, I owe this insight to my wife who made it after we saw the movie and she, and she pointed out how, you know, for years, so many super movies trade in nine 11 imagery. And so much with Snyder. And this one issues that. And instead, the end, for all the flaws it may have, the end still worked for me a lot. And it really it invokes more something like Katrina, more like a natural disaster that you have to rescue people mm. from, not some terrorist attack that could be solved by just bonking the terror, you know. So it's a totally different kind of situation. And it feels like a real divergence from like 20 years of superhero movies going off the same tragedy and trauma. That was a nice difference. I love that point. That's a, yeah. No, that's really, really well done. Batman is no longer George Bush using the Patriot Act to, uh, to catch the Joker. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, like a philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of Libertarianism.org and is produced by me, Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org.